Amen. So good morning, everyone. And as I said, we're in round two of our Jesus and Culture series. Uh, this will be our final week on this for now, anyway. I am planning to pick this up later on. Really what I wanted to do with this short series is kind of dip my toe in the water and see uh, what the reaction might be, what the response might be, to find out whether we have, I guess, an appetite together to dig more into these things. And thank you for the positive responses to last week's message. It seems that there is an appetite for this and it's something that we want to return to. So we'll do that later on. I wanna start with a couple of scriptures from 1 Peter, uh, which are on the screen. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16 and 2, 11 to 12. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And then from chapter two, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, or as strangers and aliens, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So we'll return to those scriptures toward the end. Today what we're going to do is dig a little deeper into what is going on in our culture right now and then I'm gonna say a few words at the end in terms of how I think the church might be called to respond to this. Now we finished last week uh, by suggesting that we now live in a thoroughly secular culture, which is a word we use a lot, secular, but what does it actually mean? And the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor defined it like this, Secularism is the attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. And this vision of life, this vision of secularism, has given birth to what he calls the age of authenticity. It's the age we're in right now, the age of authenticity. Next slide. This age of authenticity is one where people are called upon to be true to themselves and to seek their own self-fulfillment. What this consists of, each must determine for him or herself. No one else can or should try to dictate its content. We each have our own way of realizing our humanity without reference to a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So this is the vision of identity of the self and of the meaning of human freedom that we now live in, and it's important to point out that this is utterly unique in terms of human history. We've never really seen anything like this before. A society filled with so many competing worldviews, diverse spiritualities and sexualities, self-defined moral systems, and individually created and curated identities. In other words, friends, the beliefs and values of our culture have now radically moved beyond a Judeo-Christian framework at a popular level. We are becoming, or have already become, a post-Christian culture. Um, now that was already the case for several decades in the elite level at universities and bureaucracies and government. But after World War II, the shift into the rest of the culture accelerated rapidly. Like most baby boomer kids were sent to Sunday school, anyone here give an amen? 
even if their parents didn't go to church, right? All the kids were sent off to Sunday school, mum and dad would have a nice time at home. Uh, so in the 50s and 60s, churches were bursting with kids. But now a typical child growing up in our culture would have minimal to no exposure to the Christian faith and what they might encounter at school or in the media is quickly dismissed as either outdated or irrelevant, if not dangerous and hateful. As Charles Taylor points out, 200 years ago, virtually no one in the West could have imagined a world without God, but now virtually no one can imagine a world with God. Uh, it's not an easy time to be a Christian. And that's why we're doing this series, because if you can't name something, then you can't respond to it. If, you have, if all you have are symptoms without a diagnosis, then you have an illness with no hope of treatment. So how did we get here? Now, I can't go over what we covered last week, the kind of 150 years or so of his, historical analysis, where we looked at the influence of these guys, next slide, uh, on our current cultural moment. As I mentioned last week, it appears that if you want to change the world, you've got to have epic facial hair. That sermon is online if you want to listen to it. Um, okay, so when I say that we're in a post-Christian culture, it's not because Christians aren't around or don't participate in public life or that Christianity has no influence at all. What it means to say we're in a post-Christian context is that hardly anyone now actually shares our way of viewing and understanding the world. That's what we mean by that. Hardly anyone in our culture now shares our way of viewing and understanding the world. That means, as Carl Truman says, next slide, the era when Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected as decent members of society at large is coming to an end. Uh, indeed, it probably has already, at least in most kind of large Western cities like Melbourne, Auckland, Toronto, or New York. So the post-Christian age of authenticity, friends, is what you feel when you're trying to communicate with your friends or your work colleagues, trying to articulate why you believe what you believe and why your faith is important to you, and then you suddenly feel like you're an alien that's just arrived from another planet, or that you've just grown a second head as they look at you with a quizzical uh, expression on their face. Right? You're what's going on there is that you're interacting with a framework, a worldview that where for you, Jesus is Lord, but for everyone else, authenticity is Lord. The self is the Lord. So you might as well be speaking different languages. And actually, you are speaking different languages, culturally anyway. See, the West has become what the sociologist Philip Reif called in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Uses of Faith After Freud is the full title. We've become what he calls a third culture. Next slide. And what he argued was that there are, there are three types of cultures. First, cultures believe in fate, are pagan, are superstitious, they believe in many powerful spiritual forces that must be kind of continually appeased uh, by various sacrifices and offerings in order to get, get along in life. Second, cultures emerge from scriptural codes, on the other hand, are monotheistic and believe in a rational, sacred order. And from that order, they derive commandments and prohibitions that are designed not just to stop you from having a good time, but are designed for human and creational flourishing. In a second culture, an individual finds meaning and security in obeying God and submitting to his will. God, the sacred order, the, the, the divine transcendence, is the source of their identity. But as Reef saw, 
the contemporary West is now evolving into a third culture. And he wrote this in 1966, by the way. Um, and he updated this later on, just to, in, in a sense, uh, one of his last books was actually describing how we'd gone much further than even he thought we ever would. Th third cultures, he said, exist primarily to define themselves against second cultures. As we've, as we've seen already, they don't believe in divine transcendence. There is no sacred order. In fact, its energy is devoted to deconstructing the sacred. They have no creed except this one creed that all authority that challenges and restricts the autonomy of the individual must be resisted and rejected. But lacking a sacred order, third cultures are constantly chaotic and unstable. Everything is changing all the time and it feels really unsettling. Turns out it's really hard to maintain a sense of shared unity and responsibility for the common good when the ultimate authority is the self. Which is partly why I think Western governments are having uh, such a hard time holding our nations together, why we have become so polarized and angry, and why our governments are struggling to forge a sense of national unity. It's simply not possible in a third culture unless it's demanded, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And ironically, even though uh, the third culture has rejected the sacred order of the second culture, it still wants the benefits of that second culture. Uh, the very concepts of love and equality and fairness and peace and justice and kindness and human rights that our culture is always talking about are actually second culture virtues, not third culture virtues. So our third culture wants to break down the system but retain the values of that system. It wants a form of Christianity just without Christ. It wants the kingdom of God without the king. It wants the Christian project to be continued without the biblical sources from which it has emerged and which sustain it. It cannot last. You cannot have your secular cake and eat it too. And Philip Reef actually has a pretty grim view of where all this is heading. And he said that, next slide, that no culture can exist simply in order to exist. And because third cultures have rejected the sacred, they face an unprecedented challenge, that of justifying themselves on the basis of themselves. So Reef argues it's a fool's errand that can only end in collapse. No culture in history has sustained itself merely as a culture, however attractive and powerful it may seem. And one of the greatest examples of that, of course, is the Roman Empire. Once it kind of ran out of its meaning, it just became decadent, prosperous, but purposeless. And it was only a matter of time before the whole thing caved in. It's also why third cultures cannot simply have tolerance, but must enforce affirmation. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, tolerance is now seen as essentially a kind of veiled bigotry. Even though, ironically, tolerance is actually the more expansive position to take. Point, what, I mean, what I mean by that is that there is a lot I'm prepared to tolerate in society that I could never, gun to my head, affirm in good conscience. And I would imagine that's probably true for many of you as well. So in the end, what we know from scriptures like Colossians 2, next slide, sorry, Colossians 1, is that all cultures are dependent on God, whether they recognize it or not, for the simple reason that God is the creator and has designed the world to flourish only in relationship with him. This is what Paul says, for in him all things were created, and he's speaking about Jesus, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if God is displaced for the God of the self, our culture will eventually move into absurdity, tribalism, meaninglessness, conflict, or worse, and that is why Western cultures are becoming so unstable. We no longer have any shared vision of what we're for as people, as cultures, other than simply to exist and to consume and to have sex with uh, whoever we want, whenever we want it. We are so prosperous and so decadent and yet so lost. This is not the biblical vision of a flourishing life. As Paul says in Philippians 3, and he's weeping as he says this, for as I have told you before and now tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and their end is destruction. And I think we too should weep with the, with the Apostle Paul. This is not freedom. As the theologian David Bentley Hart puts it, and by the way, you know how I noted out on you last week? I'm going even harder today. I've got a couple of pretty long quotes, but I think you will appreciate them. And this is what David Bentley Hart says. We must ask, however, where the modern notion of freedom as pure spontaneity of the will leads the culture it pervades. At the ordinary level of public life, it obviously leads to a degradation of the very notion of freedom, its reduction in the cultural imagination to a fairly banal kind of liberty, no more significant than a consumer's freedom to choose among different kinds of bread, shoes, television, sexual partners, or political parties, at the level of society, it leads towards a decay of a shared sense of obligation or common cause, toward an increasingly insipid and self-absorbed private culture, toward a tendency to judge particular choices, not by reference to the worthiness of their goals, then solely because they have been chosen. Our modern concept of freedom can, however, lead to other more terrible things as well. For what the will may will, when it is subordinate to nothing but its own native exuberance, is practically without limit. If there is really no transcendent source of the good to which the will is naturally drawn, but only the power of the will to choose what it desires, by which to create and determine itself for itself, then no human project can be said to be inherently irrational or abominable. If freedom of the will is our supreme value, then it is for all intents and purposes our God. And certain kinds of gods, as our pagan forebears understood, expect to be fed. It turns out that the only place for a third culture to go, really, is to return to, in some fashion or other to a kind of first culture, a culture full of taboos and superstitions and tribalism and hungry ideological gods that demand we sacrifice our real freedom, our communities, and even our bodies in order that we might worship at the altar of the self. How are we going so far? We all right? Just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm taking a breath. <laughs> we have to ask, friends, we have to ask, where is this leading us? Are we experiencing a healthier culture? I don't think we are. The social research is showing that we are in the middle of a massive epidemic of loneliness, isolation, poor mental health, and a huge decline in social cohesion. The Surgeon General of the USA, Vivek Murthy, recently released a report that revealed this. Next slide, the rate of young adults who report suffering from loneliness 
went up every single year from 1976 to 2019. From 2003 to 2020, the average time that young people spent in person with friends declined by nearly 70%. Then the pandemic turbocharged our isolation. When people are disconnected from friends, family and communities, their lifetime risk of heart disease, dementia, depression and stroke skyrockets. It diminishes civic engagement and social cohesion and increases political polarization and animosity. Unless we address this crisis, we will continue to splinter and divide until we can no longer stand as a community or a country. Now, obviously, that's from a US perspective, but I think many of those same things could be said of our own culture as well. We have these issues here in Australia. And in the UK, the UK has recently appointed a minister for loneliness. And the rapid decline of the church is reflective of these broader patterns. Our churches once were places of incredible community and social cohesion, but they're disappearing. As many Christians see meaningful engagement in church community as just one choice on the buffet of options that we have available to us. So what's gone wrong? Why is this happening? The New York Times journalist and author David Brooks, who I love, has written a fascinating article on this, which I think is insightful, not just for the American point of view, but pretty much all Western societies. His article is called, Hey America, Grow Up. I encourage you to look it up. And he's describing in this article what he calls the therapeutic culture, which is basically just another name for the age of authenticity. And this is a really long quote. I don't think I've ever quoted someone at this length before in a sermon, and I'm really sorry, but it really is the best description of what I think is going on right now, so I just couldn't cut it down any more than I did. I encourage you to go read the whole article. Here is what he writes. If I were asked to trace the decline of the American psyche, I suppose I would go to a set of cultural changes that started directly after World War II, which is what we were talking about last week, and built over the next few decades, when writers such as Philip Reif, who we've already quoted this morning, and Christopher Leish, noticed the emergence of what came to be known as the therapeutic culture. In earlier cultural epochs, many people derived their self-worth from their relationship with God and their community. But in a therapeutic culture, people's sense of self-worth depends on their subjective feelings about themselves. Do I feel good about myself? Do I like me? From the start, many writers noticed that this ethos often turned people into fragile narcissists. It cut them off from the moral traditions and normal sources of meaning and identity. It pushed them, into, sorry, it pushed them in on themselves, made them self-absorbed, craving public affirmation so that they could feel good about themselves. As Leish wrote in his 1979 book, The Culture of Narcissism, such people are plagued by an insecurity that can be overcome only by seeing his sense of self reflected in the attentions of others. Now, fast forward a few decades, and the sense of lostness and insecurity has transmogrified, any sermon where you hear that word is a good day, into <laughs> a roaring epidemic of psychic pain. By 2010, it began to be clear that we are in the middle of a mental health crisis with rising depression and suicide rates, an epidemic of hopelessness and despair among the young. Social media became a place where people went begging for attention, validation and affirmation, even if they often found rejection instead. Before long, safetyism was on the march. This is the assumption that people are so fragile they need to prote be protected from social harm. So concepts like trigger warnings and microaggressions and safe spaces couldn't have lagged far behind. And he goes on to argue that this environment of safetyism um, 
spread this idea that trauma becomes a source of identity, which led to a coddling uh, and overprotecting of young people, especially at universities. And you'll notice that there's been a number of best-selling books on this, books like The Body Keeps the Score and The Coddling of the American Mind. The instability, let's go back to the quote, the instability of the self has created an immature public culture, impulsive, dramatic, erratic, and cruel. And this is right across the political spectrum, both on the left and the right. You know, it's why you can have some right-wing kid raging against the world in his bedroom via the internet and a progressive trans activist throwing tomatoes at a radical feminist, and they're both operating out of the same set of cultural assumptions. They're functioning out of the same basic worldview, even if they seem so polarized. So the core problem here goes back to the therapeutic ethos itself, the way it, change, it charges people to create yourself by yourself out of yourself. So the, he says the therapeutic self depends on others to validate his self-esteem. He cannot live without an admiring audience. His apparent freedom from family ties and institutional constraints does not free him to stand alone or to glory in his individuality. On the contrary, it just contributes to his insecurity. The problem is people can't build secure identities on their own. They weave their stable selves out of their commitments to and attachments with others. Their identities are forged as they fulfill their responsibilities as friends, family members, employees, neighbors, and citizens. This process is social and other-centric, not therapeutic. So maturity, he writes, is a, in this alternative ethos, is achieved by getting out of your own selfish point of view and learning that you're not the center of the universe, that this world isn't one giant story about you. And so this is the mantra of the secular age. Next slide. Create yourself by yourself, out of yourself. How's that working for us? The result is that we are losing the psychological and moral capacity for things like commitment and self-sacrifice and patience with people that we disagree with, which are necessary in order to have deep friendships, committed marriages, and without those, you cannot have meaningful, diverse communities. So is the secular narrative working? Are we really building a better culture for ourselves and our children and grandchildren? Now, I don't feel judgmental about this. It just makes me feel really, really sad. I feel really sad for the kids that are being raised in this environment, being taught this ideology. To create yourself by yourself out of yourself is not freedom, it's tyranny, friends. It's tyranny. It's slavery to a life that will never be enough. And when you realize that you do not have the capacity, the internal resources to create your, your own identity, I mean, no one does, then where will you turn, right? Who is gonna help you? Our culture has nothing to say to people who are in despair because they don't know who they are. The best we can offer is a therapeutic set of options. No wonder then people feel that they need constant affirmation in order just to feel normal, just to feel real, just to feel human, right? just to be seen. I mean, we all need affirmation, of course, but this is different. Tolerance in our culture could never be enough. Like lacking that deep affirmation of the soul that comes from knowing that we are a child of God, that we are made in the image of God, 
People in our culture don't have that, and so they're experiencing a deep void, a deep terrifying void in their hearts that they're trying to fill with everything else. I mean, think what social media is, right? It's a space where we ironically present our most inauthentic selves, the best, most curated versions of ourselves in order to be seen, to be affirmed, to be noticed, and to be celebrated, like the constant dopamine hit you need from the likes just to feel human, and then the crisis of identity that you experience when the posts are ignored is epidemic. And who can shoulder, friends, who can shoulder these kinds of psychological burdens? Who can live under the weight of that? Like in a world where there's no moral absolutes, no universal virtues, where nothing is sacred, the void can be consuming and frightening and overwhelming and confusing. And I think that's manifesting itself in the way that um, we are leading people, our culture is leading people, even our kids, to grasp after dramatic changes in order to try and heal the void. Right? But because faith in Jesus the very thing that people actually need right now has been pushed into the realm of private devotion and is unwelcome in the public sphere. The only possible antidote to our pain is perceived as a contagion, as a threat. As John Tyson says, I don't think I have this quote, people are worried that if Christians get cultural power, they're gonna take away the gay community's rights, they're gonna institute a Christian version of Sharia law, that we're gonna destroy culture, that we're bad for the city. And the clergy scandals and bad behavior by churches and Christian leaders have just reinforced all of this, that we are corrupt, that we're intolerant, that we're extreme, and that we're corrosive. Does anyone here feel this? And so many Christians are rightly worried, for good reason, that if they're public about their faith, they could lose friendships, be passed over for jobs, or rejected as a bigot. So how do we respond to this? What's our response to this as the people of God? I think Christians have a tendency in these kinds of situations um, to react in one of two ways. Uh, the first reaction is a reaction of fear and self-preservation. Many say, oh my gosh, like, look at what's happening in the culture, this is terrible. Look at what it's, what it's doing to our kids. What are we gonna do? We must protect our children, we must escape its influence, we must dig a metaphorical bunker, isolate into the Christian bubble, keep ourselves separate, and get ready for Jesus' return. We gotta hold on. And so that's so tempting, isn't it? Just kind of surround yourself with Christian culture, with all the people who will just agree with you all the time, who are on the same wavelength, and hope that you can hold on long enough to survive. The problem is, that isn't the way of Jesus, right? He didn't pray in John 17 that we'd be removed from the world, but he prayed instead that we would engage the world, that we'd be sent into it, and that we would, be, we would go as salt and light, that we'd go as people of faith and hope and love to make disciples. And he knew that it would be really hard, which is why he prayed that in the midst of all of that, we would be protected from the evil one, right? Or we can go on the attack, we need to take back the government for Jesus and exert our religious rights and freedoms. And yes, there are times when we need to exert our rights and freedoms, but that doesn't mean, church, that we always have to win. The need to be in control is just another expression of fear. Fear that we don't really trust in the Lordship of Jesus. So what does Peter say? If we go back to the scripture we read at the beginning, what does he say? Live such good lives among yourselves that even though, no, he says live such good lives among who? Among the pagans, so that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he returns. So even if we are accused of doing wrong, we keep loving, we keep serving, we don't give up. Why? Because we are people of hope. We have a greater hope in a better kingdom, which we were singing about this morning. And we trust that God is a way maker. He can make a way in the midst of all of this and we don't need to figure all that out. We just need to trust him and walk with him. So we can't give in to the narrative of fear and self-preservation because it's based on the incorrect assumption that Christians have to be popular and in power in order for the church to thrive. And that's false, we don't, why? Because we're not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We don't need to be afraid and we don't need to be in control. For much of history, and especially now around the world, the church is not in power and is not popular, but is thriving nonetheless. Globally, the church is growing at a faster rate than at any other time in human history. Like Jesus is still in charge of his church and he's still on the move. Are you with me? Although we're experiencing something different right now in Western culture, we don't need to worry because Jesus is Lord and if we'll stay close to him, he will lead us through it. And he'll give us wisdom in terms of how we should respond with love and with grace and with mercy and with truth without turning into people who want to be in control or demand that, that, we're, uh, that we're the ones in power in order to be able to make disciples. And it's not like, friends, that this is the worst that it's ever been. I can tell you that I'd rather be living right now in Australia, even with all our cultural and social pressures, than be a Christian in Rome under the Emperor Nero, or in Russia under Joseph Stalin. Yes, it's hard, but I'm not likely to be crucified or thrown to the lions or tortured or sent to a hard labor camp for decades because of my faith. So let's just put some of this in perspective. The other reaction that we can have is compromise and syncretism, which is basically like saying, hey, you know, the world's a different place now. We've come a long way. So what we need to do is reinterpret the scriptures to make sure that we're on the right side of history. So we downplay the hard stuff in scripture, the stuff that our culture doesn't like or that we don't like, in order that we can try and fit in, right? The only problem is if you remove the authority of scripture or if you decenter scripture, Christianity just stops making sense because you've removed the very thing that tells us what Christianity actually is. Are you with me? And besides, the Holy Spirit leaves the church when we stop preaching the scriptures because just look at what has happened to pretty much every progressive church and denomination in the world. They don't survive, they die off. They have a form of godliness without the power. The only churches that are growing around the world are those that are trying to be faithful to scripture, even if it's difficult. Um, it's not just progressive churches, though. I believe that many of the church scandals that we've seen exposed lately, scandals of greed and abuses of power and false prosperity teaching, and while it's been really hard to watch all this go down, I also think that this is the work of God cleaning up his church, dealing with false doctrine, in order that he can get us where we need to be to actually deal creatively and powerfully with the culture that we're currently in. He's getting us ready for the work ahead. So if we try to make Jesus and the culture fit in together to synchronize them, then we're just left with this awkward patchwork 
of culturally approved morality and vague God's God concepts and little snippets of Jesus' teachings put together in some palatable form which is easily dismissed as irrelevant by everyone else because it says absolutely nothing different from what the culture is already saying. It's just remaking Jesus in our own image into an idealized version of ourselves. And besides, if you compromise, you'll never fully enjoy your faith because the Holy Spirit lives within you and he's jealous for you. So if you compromise on Jesus and you compromise on your faith, then you won't be able to enjoy sin and you won't be able to enjoy church. You'll live in this horrible condition of lukewarm uh, faith, of a lukewarm heart. And honestly, why on earth would you go to church when it's just baptizing what the, the world is already telling you what to believe? Especially since the world is doing a much better job of it than we are. So now you know, friends, what Peter meant when he called us foreigners and exiles. Next slide. We are starting to feel like foreigners and exiles in our own culture, like strangers and aliens. And we have to embrace this. Can't run from it, we have to embrace this. Sooner or later, every one of us is gonna be faced with a challenging situation generated by the modern notion of selfhood. And so that means, friends, you need to think ahead and decide what you will do when you inevitably face the pressure to conform. And it's my prayer that you will do what Peter tells us, not to give in to despair, not to capitulate, but he says, set your hope on the coming of Christ so that you have power to live as obedient children, not conform to the desires of the world, but set apart, holy as he is holy. Are you with me? So despite the pressure, we are people of hope. We are people of hope. We do not need to be afraid. Despite what's going on in the culture, despite what the principalities and powers may be boastfully claiming, we know that there is not a single square inch of this world that the risen Christ does not declare, that is mine. And the missionary Leslie Newbegin once said, and I love this, when he was asked you know, what his hope was for the future, he said, I am neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I am neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is the source of my hope. Okay, let me finish with this. In my reading of church history, one thing is clear to me. That just when things often seem like they are at their worst, God has a way of miraculously turning things around, of showing up in power, not from the top down, but from the ground up, to remind us that this world is his, it belongs to him, and he knows where it's headed. In the post-war era, think about our own recent history, God used people like Billy Graham and the Jesus generation in the 60s to revive a lukewarm church. My parents came to faith because of Billy Graham's ministry, as did thousands of Australians. I've heard that it changed the culture of the church. It was pretty lukewarm, it was failing, it was declining, and after Billy Graham's visits here in, I think, in the late 50s and 60s, 
the church was revived. And we've been kind of living on that revival ever since. And we need to start praying for another one. In previous eras, it's nearly always, however, a small remnant of faithful Christians prepared to count the cost who have changed the world and reshaped culture. Our culture is by no means doomed. Like, this is not the final word. And I am not saying that the answer is just praying for revival. I'm saying that it is that, but it's also being faithful to Jesus in the midst of the tension and trusting in the Scriptures. And by being willing together as a church community to engage in meaningful Christian community. If we're going to stand against the pressures of the God of the self, we are going to need the kinds of Christian communities that can actually remind us and form us once again into the promise of what the church really is, called to be the body of Christ, called to be holy, called to be biblical, called to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, called to be salt and light, called to be a family, called to be a new nation, called to be a royal priesthood, called to be a community of sacrificial servants and the glory of Jesus in the world. That's our birthright. Not church as spectacle, not church as performance and entertainment, not church as a baptized version of the culture, not church as just something that's here to make you feel good, not church as just one option among others. None of that is going to cut it in the culture that we now live in. And it's why so many young people raised in the church entertainment world are now deconstructing their faith because it hasn't actually given them a grounding in Jesus that can sustain them through the pressures of the culture. We need something much more robust, something much more powerful. And the sad reality is that our churches currently are not equipped to deal with this cultural situation we're in. Our current, our current kind of spiritual formation practices are going to be about as effective as a matchstick house in a tornado. We need something that goes much deeper. We need to find a better way. And since I finished with John Tyson last week, I'll finish with him this week as well. John Tyson says, we need to recover a vision of Christian community as a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. The church has done it before. Under immense situations of pressure, I believe we can do it again. It's going to take a lot of prayer. It's going to take a lot of soul searching. It's going to take a commitment to Jesus that goes deeper perhaps than anything that we've experienced thus far. But I think the Holy Spirit is with us and will empower us to be the people we need to be for this current cultural moment, because I don't believe God makes mistakes, and I believe he has put you here for such a time as this. He's put us here for such a time as this. He's put this church here in this location for such a time as this. So we don't need to be afraid. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Before we sing, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have never abandoned your church, not once. You never have and you never will. 
As Aidan prayed at the beginning, Lord, we believe that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us always. Then when we ask for what we need in your name, you give it to us. And what we need right now is an outpouring of your Holy Spirit that reminds us of who we are as the people of God, that empowers us once again to live as faithful disciples in this current cultural moment, and that gives us wisdom and creativity and the resources that we will need in your presence to be able to meet the challenges that we are faced with. Not with an attempt to grasp after power for ourselves, but to be servants, to love deeply, to forgive, to act with grace and mercy, to reveal once again to our culture that is so suspicious of the church that Jesus is alive and that he's really, really good. He's really, really good. And he is the only answer to their pain. So we pray for that, Lord Jesus, that not only will you pour out your spirit on us and revive us, but you will pour out your presence once again on this world, people around us and draw them to you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would see a great harvest of people who are finding healing and transformation and life and flourishing and meaning and purpose and identity in you and in your presence, not in themselves. Lord, we, we grieve for those who are trapped in a world where the only option for them is to try and build an identity by themselves and out of themselves. There's such a better way because you are our creator and we're made in your image. And when we find and discover and receive your love, it changes everything. It changes our hearts, it changes our minds. It gives us a future and a hope. It rebuilds our identity. It helps us to become people, human beings, made in your image, crowned with glory and honor. So we pray this, Jesus, and I pray for anyone here this morning who is really struggling with their faith, who's feeling like pressure is too much, that it's, it's so hard to be faithful, it would be so easy to do something else. Lord, I pray for all of us really, but particularly for those folks this morning, that you'll meet them where they are. You'll pour out your love upon them. Lord, remind them of the joy of their salvation. In Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Friends, why don't you just open up your hands, open up your hearts. Let the Spirit of God minister to you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit rest on you this morning. All you need to do is say, I welcome you, Holy Spirit. I receive you, Holy Spirit. Come and refresh my heart, Lord. Renew my mind. Heal my body. Heal my pain. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you said, not just go into all the world and make disciples, but you also said, and I will be with you always. 
even to the very end. Jesus, I want to be so bold as to ask, could you please remind us of that promise today? Remind us that you really are with us. Show us that you really are with us. Come, Holy Spirit. We cannot do this alone. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.